Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Halloween Spooktacular number two. <laughs> okay, I'm done. Thank you. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Appreciate it. So, like you said, this is a Halloween episode, so I'm going to tell you about a double homicide that happened on Halloween. Ooh, that's that's actually spooky. That's, that's, that's spookier and less sad than mine. Okay, before we get started on our second spooktacular, I just want to remind everyone to go ahead and get on iTunes, get on Apple Podcasts, and leave us a review. That helps other people to find us. That helps other people to, to see our podcast and for it to come up as a suggestion for them. So please go ahead and do that. And if you have any thoughts, suggestions, comments, questions, you can reach us on our website, mysterypodcast.com. We have a little uh, contact us section that you can send us a message through or get a hold of us through Twitter or Instagram. Instagram. Yeah. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Okay, so to get us started, I just want to talk a little bit about our victims. So we're going to sort of flash in on three roommates living together in California. So of these three roommates, we have Leslie, who was a South Carolina native and former beauty queen who had moved to the Napa area to be closer to her mother. So she was working at a winery, she had a really bubbly personality, and she was only 24 in 2004, which is when this crime takes place. So her life was really just getting started. And they're in, what, Napa Valley? or? They're in the Napa area, yes. Okay. So in the summer of 2004, Leslie moves in with Adrian, who's 26, who was an avid volleyball player, softball player. She was, like, super athletic, super sporty. Um, kind of one of those go-getter kind of people. Um, and she was no stranger to adversity. When she was 16, uh, Adrian was actually in a really terrible car accident, and it left her with short-term memory loss. Oh, dear. And so, right. And so she actually had to um, kind of, like, relearn how to read and kind of start all over and um, was able to push through that and was able to get a college scholarship and go to college, which is a pretty big deal. I mean, I've never been in that severe of a car accident where I've sort of had to like rebuild the very basic things that I've learned in my life. Yeah, traumatic brain injuries are scary. That's like that 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 is a terrifying thing to have happen to someone. Right, well especially at sixteen, you know, when you're sixteen the biggest thing you should be worried about is like going to homecoming or what you're gonna buy at the mall or whatever, not dealing with a traumatic brain injury. Right. Uh, But she was able to push through that, you know, come out stronger at the end, I'm sure. And uh, she actually went on to become a civil engineer. And it was through her work there, um, being a civil engineer, that she met her best friend, Lily. Now, Lily didn't live with these three roommates, but she did come over from time to time. So earlier in that summer as well, Lauren, who is the third roommate, and we're only going to refer to her by her first name, Lauren, because she's asked that her last name be withheld in the media, um, had moved in with Adrian because they got along super well. And Adrian kind of got along with everybody, so this was not really that much of a surprise. So we have Leslie, Um, Adrian, and Laura? 
Leslie, Adrian, and Lauren. Lauren, sorry. Lauren, yes. La- Ralph Lauren. <laughs> right, their, their third roommate was Ralph Lauren. No, yes. Lauren. Um, and Lauren was also really athletic, you know, kind of a go-getter. She had gotten a political science degree. So these are all three very active, very living in the moment, living their best life, living the dream, you know, kind of women. Right. So they're all living together, renting this house together, and things are going great. Now, fast forward to Halloween of 2004. So they've only been living together for a couple of months, but everything's going great. They're all getting along really well. Um, You know, maybe they had a couple of scuffles here and there about like burning guys home or something like that. But I mean, it was, you know, the typical roommate. It's college You you know, whenever you live with other humans, that's going to come up. Right. Yeah. But no, no big, you know, fights or concerns or anything like that. So like I said, it's Halloween, and the roommates spent the night handing out candy to the neighborhood children, which is like one of my favorite things to do on Halloween, because I love seeing all those cute little kids in their costumes. Do you get a lot of trick-or-treaters in the middle of rural Midwest? No, I had one little kid last year, and he was so cute. He was dressed as Iron Man, and he was just super adorable, and I was like, well, I have this entire bowl of candy here, so really however much mom and dad say you can have, you can have, because no one else has come to visit me. Come, <laughs> but it was she, precious. You should come live where I am. Uh, we don't turn on the light for trick-or-treaters because, like, we have to walk down a really big flight of stairs to hand candy out to people, so we just kind of don't. Because we're, we're bad people. Okay, well, unlike you, these three roommates were good people. And they handed out uh, candy to children and brought joy to their neighborhood. It's very and their nice. house, it is very nice. Well, and their house is in this really quiet uh, 2600 block of Dorset Street in Napa, California. And it's a really safe place to live. In fact, in 2004, the town hadn't seen a murder in two years. Dang. So this is a very, very safe place to live, you know, and it's not... Yeah. Right, and it's not a place that you would normally think that these women in their early 20s, mid-20s would want to live because it's not, you know, doesn't have like a hopping nightlife. There aren't a bunch of... It's not happening, man. No, there's not like, you know, nightclubs and bars or whatever, but they like living the quiet life. They like kind of, you know, being away from the party scene and, you know, they like to stay at home and watch movies and do things like that, but none of them were big partiers. Oh, man. So this is a perfect neighborhood for them. So just around 11 p.m., these three roommates, so once again, that's Leslie, Adrian, and Lauren, decide to head to bed. So sound asleep in the downstairs bedroom is Lauren. So Lauren is on the first floor, and the other two roommates have bedrooms upstairs. And at first she wakes up, Lauren does, because the security light behind the garage is tripped. And at first she thinks, okay, well, whatever, it could be a raccoon, it could be kind of anything right then she hears her dog bark but only once and there were cats who lived there too and sometimes the dog got annoyed with the cats or the cats got annoyed with the dog so she was like okay that's not super out of the ordinary right these are both things that could have happened in that order and are perfectly explainable without a murder about to happen right however we know oh, in the year so of our scared. lord 2018 that something bad is coming something this way Something wicked this way comes. Uh, the Lord of our year, yes. And the Lord of our year. <laughs> um, so she sees the security light, hears the dog bark, 
then she hears someone walking up the stairs. Uh-oh. Now, at first she isn't too concerned because only a couple of weeks before, one of her roommates had brought home a guy to spend the night, and he had come over in a very similar way. And they got a little noisy up in the bedroom, but it was something that the roommates talked about, and they decided it wasn't a big deal, and they would just try to be a little bit more, you know, considerate of each other and thin walls in the future. So she thinks, well, maybe this is what's happening again. I'm not going to get super, super worried yet. I am. Right. But then she hears screaming and breaking glass. Now, that's a warning sign. Yes. Now, this is like high alert, wide awake, jumping out of the bed, you know, that kind of a thing. So Lauren freaks out, which I don't blame her for at all. And she runs out of the house. Like you do. She barrels out of the house. And she ends up running into the backyard and realizing that maybe this wasn't a good choice because there's nowhere for her to go. The backyard is fenced in. Oh, God. So she hides. And she's not sure what to do, but she can hear her roommate screaming for help. And it's Adrian in specific who's calling for help. That's so, so scary. Oh, my God. Like, what do you even scary. do? What do you do? Right. 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 You're just, you know, living your life and, like, you're hiding in the backyard. You don't know who it is. You don't know what's going on, really. All you know is they're screaming and, you know, your roommate's screaming for help. And it's, what, 2004? So, you forgot your flip phone charging on the desk? Like, what? Right, right. And she has this all alone, but she didn't bring it with her. I mean, people were not tied and glued to their phones. I mean, even today, I think that if something happened like this, I might run out without my phone, too. Maybe. I'm not going to hold Maybe. that against someone. Yeah. <laughs> so she is scared shitless, which I would be, too. But she decides that she can't just sit back here not doing anything anymore. So she decides to go back into the house. Now, she doesn't even know, has the attacker fled? Is the attacker still in the house? What is going on? She's not sure, but she can still hear her roommate calling for help. Oh, my God. That's so so scary. It is scary, right? So she goes up the stairs. And she sees Leslie face down in a pool of her own blood. And she is clearly no longer alive. Oh, my God. She then goes into Adrian's room and finds Adrian still alive, but bleeding really heavily, crouched behind her bed with multiple stab wounds. Oh, my God. Right. So Lauren tries to call 911 on the landline phone because back then... People still had landline phones. Did this person cut the wire? Yes, the phone is dead. Oh my god. So she cannot use the phone. So she's like, you know, terrified for her freaking life, which is, I would be terrified too. So at some point, she either grabs her cell phone and runs back outside or maybe has left her cell phone in her car. But all I know is that she runs back outside because she's terrified, which I would be too, gets in her car and drives away while she's driving and calling 911. Right. Yeah. Because you don't like, where did the attacker go? Right. You don't know because the attacker could still be in the house at this point. She never saw this person. Right. Exactly. And she doesn't know who it is exactly. Is it one person? Is it several people? Is it just a robbery gone wrong? Is it someone purposely coming for someone? She has no idea whatsoever what's going on. So, yeah, like, this is what I would do to Lauren, I get you, girl. Get out of there. Yeah, get help, get help, get safe. Exactly, which is exactly what she does. Yeah, 100%. I'm on board. 
good decision making. This is anti-horror movie decision making, and I like it. Right. Now, I did hear some accounts that seemed to make it... That seemed to indicate that maybe she had heard someone leaving the house when she was in the backyard, but that was in the minority. So I really think, and based on the other accounts I read, that she wasn't sure. She didn't know. Well, yeah, so I mean, she, you don't know if there were multiple attackers, like... And they could have come back. You have no idea yeah. if somebody's going to, like, leave the house and come back. You don't know. You don't know jack shit at this point. Yeah, of course. So police arrive at the scene, and... As I mentioned, Leslie had already passed away, and Adrian is fatally wounded. And unfortunately, Adrian dies soon after paramedics arrive. And so Lauren survives, but has some pretty awful PTSD. Uh, yeah. After her two roommates dying, and especially because right now she is unable to identify her attacker or the attacker in the house. She doesn't know who it was, why they were there, if it was random, if it was someone they knew. She right, didn't know if motive? it was someone coming for her, if they were coming for them. Right, she has no idea. So she is... Is she you a know, target for this person that's still out there, too? Like Exactly. She has no idea, which I think would be the scariest part, is just having no idea and not knowing. That's so scary. So, right. So... Moving on to the case, because obviously the police are going to investigate and try to figure out, like, what the hell is going on here. Oh, yeah. So, unfortunately, they don't have a ton of clues at the scene. They don't find a murder weapon. I mean, clearly both of these women had been stabbed, but they don't find, like, it's not like a kitchen knife is missing from the block. It's not like they find a knife at the scene. So, they don't, they know what kind of murder weapon was used, but they can't find it. Right. They end up collecting 266 pieces of potential evidence, but we need to keep in mind that that is just potential evidence. So That's at this point, everything. they don't right. They don't know what's going to be helpful. They don't know what's going to matter, what's a red herring or not. They're just trying to cover all their bases and get everything they can. Right. So while they're investigating and they're checking out the house, they do find a broken kitchen window, which is what they think the killer used to get into the home. And they find what they think is a drop of the killer's blood. So they go ahead and test that, and they find that the blood contains the DNA of a white male. Now, it doesn't make any instant matches to CODIS. It's not like, oh, here's this person who's committed all these crimes before. We know exactly who it is. But they have somewhere to start because neither of the three roommates were a white male. Right. <laughs> so it's clearly somebody else. And it wasn't, you know, like a week's old. Like, it seemed like it came from that night. So that's a pretty... That's a big find. Good. Right. And then they have that DNA to test in the future, you when know, as they start suspect, getting suspects. Right. Exactly. They also find cigarettes outside the home, which they think they can test DNA from. And this takes a while. This isn't, you know, whenever anybody watches like CSI or Law and Order, it's like they do like an instant, you know what I mean? It's like a five minute bakes in the microwave and it's done DNA test kind of a thing, which is not how it really works. It's a match. <laughs> right, just like a little bar just like fills up and it, you know, takes like five minutes as you're sipping your coffee and you're done. No. Right, my, favorite um, is, my favorite is how they always like find matches too. Like nothing in DNA is a match. It's, it's a statistical science. It's like, well, there's a 99.75% chance that these two people are, the, uh, you know, that, they, that these two right. samples are the same, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not a match per se. Right. That's not the word I would use. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's not how that works. So they find these cigarettes outside, 
and they are able to match the DNA from the cigarettes to the blood near the kitchen window. Oh. So we know that these came from the same person. So somebody was smoking outside while they were waiting to go in and kill some people. Yes, is exactly what they're thinking. And so over the course of their investigation, and we'll come back to that too in a second here, but over the course of their investigation, police end up interviewing over a thousand people. Oh my god. Yes, and they collect hundreds of DNA samples to see if anybody has a connection to the cigarettes at the scene or that drop of blood. And just from their routine investigation, they don't immediately find anything. That's so crazy. They work, right, and they work really hard over 11 months, even though they don't have a ton to go off of in this case. So it's almost a year. And they have DNA yes. evidence. I'm sure this, like, I'm sure the killer is like, I'm done. Like, I got away with it. Yes. <laughs> well, we're getting to that. We'll get there. Oh, the hubris. The hubris comes in. The hubris, yes. So two weeks after the murders, Lily, who I'd mentioned before, who was the best friend of Adrian, organized a vigil for her friends. The only and other character was... we have, yes. Yeah, so she really wanted to find out who had done this to her friends. You know, it was such a shocking, it seemed like it came out of nowhere murder, and she really wanted to get justice for, for her friends. She wasn't super close with Leslie, but I mean, you know, like your best friend gets murdered in their house with their roommate. You're going to care about that person too, my proxy. Oh, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah, that's terrifying. Yeah. No, hundred percent. Right, and she had been there, you know, Lily had gone to visit. She had met Leslie. She had met Lauren. So it's not like these people were complete strangers to her. And yeah. I think that there's just sort of a general fear in the community then. There would have to be. Somebody who is capable of this murder right is still out there and you don't have a motive so you don't know why you don't have a motive like these are these are two people who were clearly liked in the community like oh yeah like these two women and all three of them had met probably all of the children that live within like a two mile radius of their house in an affluent part of california like you know they were well liked by all those parents they absolutely were Right, and so people are scared. Like, okay, shit, I'd be scared too. So yeah. I get it. They really want to find out who did this. No, I'm sure. I'm sure. Like security systems and everything went through the roof. Sales just or went everybody through the roof. Bottom, those, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. So I mean, life does kind of go on, though. You know, like I said, eleven months go by without a whole lot going on, at least on the surface. And that would in be February, crushing. Like it would be months of nothing. Right, and you just have no idea where the case is at or anything like that. But, I mean, people have to keep living. So, in February of 2005, Lily marries her fiancé, Eric. And Adrian's mother is actually invited to come and read some scriptures during the couple ceremony because, you know, Adrian and Lily were best friends. So, this was really important for her to have, you know, if Adrian couldn't be part of the wedding anymore, to have this sort of memory of her. Aww. and have that be part of the wedding yes and um they actually like i had mentioned had just met through work so they weren't kind of like the lifelong you know we've been friends since we were two years old kind of friends but still had that really yeah they still had that really intense friendship that you can sometimes form later in your life when you meet somebody and you just click and you just instantly you know get along or on the same page and really care about each other yeah of course so we finally get to September of 2005. 
and we're just going to kind of take a step back here and just like we're just the public you know we're just the public listening to what's going on with this case you know it's still on your mind but maybe not as fresh as back in Halloween of 2004 so it's September which is almost a year later and police announced they have found a DNA match from the cigarette butts that were found at the scene they also say that they believe that these cigarettes belong to the killer and these are a really unusual brand. They're Camel Turkish Gold. And this brand had only been on the market for four months at the time of the murders. Oh, so sweet. this is like a very specific, weird type of cigarette. A murderer slash connoisseur of bespoke cigarette brands. Oh, right, exactly. So they're thinking, okay, guys, you have to know someone. Like, you would notice if someone smoked these. They're this, weird. This is a person that talks about the type of cigarettes they smoke with people. At <laughs> right. This isn't just, you know, I the person these... who's buying, like, the cheapest yeah. pack of cigarettes they can get. Right. They're not getting Marlboro Lights. They're going. They're getting their Turkish Golds and going to the bar and being like, have you tried these Turkish Golds? I'll give you one for $2. They're delicious. Right. And it's important to note that we you and I and our listeners know that this match that they're talking about is a match between the blood in the kitchen and the cigarettes. They do not have a name yet, but they just say that they have a match because technically it is a match. So, so they're advertising this to the public that they have a match with air quotes. Exactly. Oh, oh, the plays, the plays, the genius moves. <laughs> right, all oh, of being sneaky. 40 so chess. Sneaky. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> so, zooming back in, close in on the case again, Lauren, remember Lauren? She's the sole survivor. Uh-huh. Um, is still working with the police to try and figure out who did this, even though she doesn't have a lot of information. And they're really coming back to her and saying, you know, do you know anybody who smokes at all? Anybody who you think, you know, even if you think, oh no, that person could never do something like this. Anything. You know, just, right, just anything. Anyone you can think of. Because can we, we need somewhere mom? to start. Can we interview your pet dog? Anyone, anything, anywhere. Exactly, exactly. Because, you know, as the police know, and as we've talked about, you never know what a person is capable of. You oh, yeah. don't know what is going on in someone's head. So they don't want to have any pre- preconceived notions, anything like that. Just give us some names. No, anyone is capable of, of anything. Like, there's nothing physically stopping you from doing horrible things. It's just your brain knowing that that's, not, that's a terrible thing to do. Exactly. It's us hoping for the best. But Yes. But, but, <laughs> but, but two, but, pe- two but. people got stabbed to death. In a Napa exactly. Valley home. Yeah. Exactly. So Lauren starts to think. And she spends some time thinking and spends some time thinking. And it's around this time that she remembers when Eric and Lily came over for a housewarming party to visit Adrian that he was a smoker. Oh. Now, she didn't remember what type of cigarettes he smoked. So, I'm sorry, Anything who is this? like that. Eric is now the husband of Lily. Okay. And Lily is the best friend of Adrian. Got so Lily's husband. Yes. So wow. at the time, Eric and Lily were just fiance and fiance back then. Right. But she remembers that he was a smoker. So she says this to the police, kind of like, hey, maybe this is kind of random. But, you know, Lily's husband 
Eric is a smoker. And so the police go through their records and they see that they haven't tested Eric's DNA yet. So that makes some oh kind of a question mark. Because I'm they can't definitively marking. say yes or no. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So they keep trying, they start trying to interview him trying to get in touch with him and he's like dodging them at every turn like he doesn't want to talk to them and he's not under arrest so they can't like make him talk right you know which is the thing that people never really want to consider but if you're not under arrest even if you are under arrest you You don't don't have have to to say shit to the police no get a lawyer you can get a lawyer which i recommend get a lawyer if the police are questioning you but he doesn't have to they don't you know what i mean they're not able to like corner him and keep him in a room until he talks so in September, they announced this brand of cigarettes to the public. And friends and family of Eric recognize almost immediately that that's the type of cigarette he smokes now. Yup. Yup. I'm on board. You've hooked me. Right. So it's after this announcement that the police have made on September 27th that Eric turns himself in for the murders of Leslie and Adrian. He turned himself in? Yes, he... Daxi! She is a little monster, let me tell you. A spooky monster. A spooky monster, yes. That's dang So he actually confessed first to these families and friends who kind of confronted him about his cigarette choice. And so he confessed to them first, and they were like, you need to turn yourself in. What... So what was his motive? Well, we'll get there, kind of. If you're looking for answers, I'm not going to have them for you, unfortunately. Oh, my God. So this comes, right, and this comes as a complete shock to, like, everybody. You know, because even as Lauren was like, well, I mean, I think I remember Eric smoking. She wasn't instantly like, oh, yeah, it's him. Oh, for sure it's him. Yeah. You know, and like all these people didn't even really consider him. They didn't think about him. They didn't think that he would, you know what I mean, be this type of a person. And he apparently, Eric, had gotten really, really nervous after the police announced um, this DNA match. And he thought it was only a matter of time. So he was already like, you know, walking on broken glass at this point. He was like, he was Um, like preparing for, for his life in prison kind of. So he, he knew. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing to note about Eric is that while he did have a history of abusing alcohol, he was not a convicted felon. He wasn't a convicted Anything. He had never gotten in trouble with the law before, had never been in trouble for domestic violence or fighting or anything like that. So he would never have been immediately the number one person on the police radar, you know. And also there was nothing in his history that suggested that he'd be capable of stabbing two people to death. Jesus. So let's, right, so let's circle back to the night of the murder, going over what we know now and what we learned from Eric. So he drove to the roommate's home and arrived sometime after midnight. And he stood outside their home, smoked three cigarettes, I guess, as he was either deciding if he was really going to go through with this or trying to calm his nerves or whatever it was. But he smoked his three cigarettes. And then he enters the home through a downstairs kitchen window. Now, the window was unlocked, but he had some trouble, like, getting into it, which is 
how we ended up with it broken. Right, and cutting himself, apparently. Right. So he passes Lauren's room, which had her door closed. So you couldn't immediately tell if you were just standing outside her door if she was in there or not. Right. So he climbs the stairs to the second floor of the home, and he stabbed both Leslie and Adrian to death. And it's important to note that several times while he was being interviewed, Eric said to police that he couldn't remember what happened. Mm. So eventually he flees the home and he ditches the knife somewhere, but he can't remember where. And the knife is actually never found. So wow. we don't know what happened to it. Um, he also burned the clothes he was wearing that night. Okay. So a lot of it is a blur to him. So like I was reading this interview with um, Lauren, for instance, and she was talking about, you know, did the fact that I have my door closed save my life that night? Did it make it seem like I wasn't home? Or at least make it a more risky target to try to open the door, attack her. Right, exactly. Right, exactly. But he didn't even have a good reason. Right. He never said, you know, oh, I purposely ignored Uh, Lauren's room or anything like that. No, nothing. He was thinking some sort of logically. It's not like he was just like blackout drunk or on like on any sort of drug or anything like that. Like. Right. He stood outside working himself up and then walked by a closed door because it was closed for whatever reason and then walked upstairs. What up? Oh, my God. Right. So he never gives a motive. No, he never says anything, which is probably the most frustrating thing about this case is that he doesn't have an answer. He doesn't have an answer for anyone. Um, Some people believe that he had become jealous of the friendship between his fiancee, Lily and Adrian, because they were spending a lot of time together. And this was corroborated by sources and it's like sources, quote unquote, because, you know what I mean? You don't know how legit it is or not. Uh, Who told primetime that he, Eric had written a suicide note indicating that he was jealous of the relationship between Lily and Adrian. But that still isn't an answer to me. That's not an answer at all. That doesn't equate to murder. So what is the aftermath of this, right? That's like where another, do we where do we go from thing here? That he that he like that's that doesn't that, that's nothing. That means nothing. I, I don't accept that answer, right? <laughs> that's not that's not an answer. Hey, what do you want for dinner? I, uh, well, I like the show Bones. What? No, that's not, no, you're not, no. Exactly, exactly. You've answered, you've answered another question that nobody asked, but we still, we still need a motive, right? Right. So, so where does this leave us? Like I was saying, what is the aftermath of all this? So in 2006, in exchange for pleading guilty to two counts of first degree murder, And special allegations of, and this is like very specific to me, but special allegations of lying in wait, the use of a knife, knife, and committing a crime with multiple victims, he didn't have to face the death penalty. So they took the death penalty off the table for him pleading guilty. So he doesn't actually ever go to trial. This was in California? Yes. I didn't know California had the death penalty. I guess I'm not sure either. We'll have to look that up. Yeah. In the show notes. (laughs) So he agrees to spend the rest of his life behind bars. He waives his right to seek an appeal. Yes. Great. Excellent. Wonderful. 
He also agrees that he can never profit financially from the deaths of his victims. So he can't, like, have a book deal, right? Can't, like, do a special, you know, paid interview with NBC News or whatever. He can't do any of that. Thank God. They also included a sort of, like, subclause in that that just flat out said that he couldn't speak to the media about the case. So even if it was free and they're not paying him, he can't speak to the media. And he can only speak to... Um, clergy members and his own family members about the case. Wow. Which at first I was like, at first I kind of felt iffy about, you know, okay, if I were the families of the victims, how would I feel? But then I realized that by doing this, they're really taking away the only power he has left. Yeah. At all. You know, they're taking that away from him and really putting it in the hands of them and, you know, the story of of their family members of the victims and taking away any agency from him. The story of their lives is much more important than the story of their murders. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I mean, at first I was like, Oh, but then I totally got it after I thought about it a little bit more. Yeah. Um, and they decided that if he violated any terms of this plea, so somehow he got some sort of monetary benefit, that money would get basically taken away and be funneled to some nonprofits chosen by the families of the victims. Hell yeah. So, I mean, they have, like, kind of everything set up. Every contingency plan set up. This is a thorough sentence. (laughs) Yes. Wow. And like I said, he never went to trial, so a motive for the murders never came to light. But, I mean, even then... Also, you shall never have chocolate again. Never shall (laughs) you have chocolate or ice cream at all. Damn, that's Um, a harsh sentence. Well, and we have to think, too, that as far as a motive goes, even if it had gone to trial... You don't need to present a motive to prove someone guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. No, especially since he had confessed. <laughs> uh, right, exactly. And they had DNA. Like, they, they would have gotten a warrant for the DNA one way or another. They would have gotten a DNA sample from him, obviously, because they arrested him. So, I, I you know, if, even right. if it had gone to trial, if there's a death penalty in California, he probably would have just gotten the death penalty and that would be the end of it. Wow. Right. Well, and so I was reading this interview and it was with um, like Adrian's family and Leslie's family and it was talking about, so they got to make like victim impact statements in court and things like that. And this one quote that really stood out to me and it like really pulled up my heartstrings and made me sad um, was Adrian's mother and she addressed Eric directly. I mean, first of all, she put him on blast for being like, how dare you ask me to speak at your wedding Right. Oh, when man. you murdered my daughter? Like, okay, first of all, how this dare you? This is a friend of the family, like so ingrained in, in their family probably. Right. So she was like, okay, so first of all, F you. <laughs> But then she also said, and this is the quote that really got me, was, um, my baby never wore a turtleneck sweater in her whole life, and yet she had to be buried in one. And still, it couldn't hide the extent of her wounds. That's so tragic. Oh, my God. Because of how brutal he was. I mean, this Uh wasn't like a, you know, stabbing someone any amount of times is bad, but there's definitely a difference between you stab someone once and you run away, and you repeatedly stab someone to death. Aggressively and brutally and mutilate them like that is that is a whole other level and a whole whole different bag right 
And so at the same court hearing, Eric had a chance to make a speech, which I just like, ugh, rolled my eyes through every bit of it I read. Like talking about, he had a bunch of like non-excuses talking about how around that time his grandfather had passed away and he had been super close to his grandfather and how his relationship with Lily was deteriorating. And he said, quote, there was a rage inside me. If only I had listened to those who pleaded with me to get me the help I needed, end quote. And I'm like, you are still responsible here. Right. You are responsible. I don't care if your mammy died, if your great-grandpa died, if your brother died, if your twin died. That doesn't make it okay to murder people. Right. Like, and, I don't... It, it really felt like a first, non-thing. And there was, this wasn't like an attack of rage, either. This wasn't a thing where he, you know... Drove got into a fight and, with them yeah got into a fight with them or drove over there because they had sent him an angry email or something even and broke down the door and like stabbed them repeatedly because he was even angry about it this was a thing where he drove over there stood outside the house contemplating his choices and his decisions for mm-hmm. clearly several minutes long enough to smoke three cigarettes break into the house secretly and quietly and then murder two people probably tried to murder three people before leaving Exactly, right. So this I was, was just first like, degree F premeditated, you, <laughs> planned, and, and perpetrated. This, this is so, so awful and brutal and unnecessary and preventable in the simplest of ways. Right, I'm like, Eric, cry me a river. This I don't feel bad a, for you at all. Right, this wasn't even a man with a temper. Like, not that that's even better. Like, like having a temper and doing something out of anger isn't better. Arguably, it's... I don't know. If, I don't know. Like, I don't know which is worse, but it's just, it's so, so preventable. But he's, we can agree he's bad. He's, he's bad. So bad. Eric is bad. He's so bad. He's like, right, and then, he's like the worst, the worst. He's like a serial killer, but that never got away with it. Like, you have to wonder if, like, in five years, if, if the whole cigarette, if he was smarter about it or had never, you know, bled, if he had opened the window <laughs> properly, if he would have killed again in five years or something. Right, or if something else would have happened and, like, triggered him quote-unquote right right exactly and then lily his wife also got to make a statement and like oh my god i have such conflicting feelings about it right i have such conflicting feelings so she blamed his alcohol abuse and depression for his actions but she overall forgave him girl right and she said quote he has paid his debt through jesus christ Ah, in the days right Get, in me the days be- Get me out of here. I have to go. I have to go. In the days before he confessed, I knew something was terribly bothering him. I told him, Eric, there is nothing in this world that you could do to make me love you less. Those <laughs> words are just as true today as they were that afternoon. End quote. And I'm I like, really? The- I need to go throw up the tacos I just ate for dinner. Oh, God. That makes me nauseous. That makes me so sick. Oh, God. I just, oh yeah, like I feel ugh. so icky, and just, I mean, it's because she's a victim too in this, right? Absolutely, she is, absolutely. She's a victim too, so I'm like trying not to be too harsh on her, but I'm also like, girl, he murdered two people in cold blood, two people for that no you discernible didn't. reason, right? Your best friend, and you know, like an innocent bystander. Like for I don't, no how can you reason. forgive him for, for no reason? Zero reason. Like, you have to wonder like, if there was some sort of psychological abuse at home or something. Like, that's purely some conjecture. Some sort of domestic abuse, right. Yeah, yeah, like domestic psychological abuse or even, like, full-on, you know, domestic physical abuse. Like, 
there there was something sketch about their relationship for her to just be like he's he's paid his debt to jesus christ and i forgive him she wouldn't have like yeah. a southern accent she's from california but still still but still it's hinky it's oh it's it's that's that's gross that well, makes and me regardless, feel, that makes me feel gross. I don't, I don't even, I don't know if that's good or bad or wrong or right or anywhere in the middle. But I feel but nauseous feel listening. Icky. I feel icky. I feel nauseous listening to that, and I don't right. like well, it. I don't like. Regardless, it at all. if she forgives him, he's sitting in jail to this day. He's never going to have a chance of parole, and that's where he's going to stay. Yeah, we never yeah, get to hear from him, which is uh, great. He never gets to tell anyone or anything his story. But, yes, I mean, it's good that we don't get to hear from him. And I'm all about that. I'm all about not giving agency to the perpetrators of violence. You know, we want the story to stay with the victims and the victims' families and talk about them, which is why I hate it when people, you know, talk about Francis Estate a lot of times with serial killers. And they're like, oh, "Oh, they only ever want to focus on, you know, the killer themselves and not the victims. And I'm like, don't give them that power. Don't give them that. Right. You know, don't give that to them. They've, You know what I mean? Don't. No. Stop. Right. <laughs> Even in, like, you know, amazingly interesting cases of serial killers from, like, the Victorian area. And it's like, no, you gotta, the murders, no, you gotta not, gotta not, like, both, both stories, maybe that story needs to be told, but both stories need to be told. You need to tell the stories of the victims, not the story of the, of the murderer. Well, and especially in cases like this. Of men committing violence against women. Yes, 100%. Or, yeah, 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 100%. Like, am I shocked that it was a man who came and who murdered these two women? No, not, not at, at all. all. Not at all. Yeah. Like, am I shocked that he was maybe jealous of this relationship between his fiance and a friend? No, I'm not shocked at all. <laughs> if that's even the case, I don't. It just seems like even such, if it a, is, such a weak, like, it just it seems like such a weak, I, I would accept, if he had given a motive, like, I just wanted to watch some people die, I, I would accept that as a motive above, you know, I was jealous of my wife spending time with her friends, I was time jealous. Which, and that just, also, you know, like, I don't want to play armchair detective or armchair psychologist, because yeah. we haven't talked to them, we don't know anything about them. But, yeah, a lot of times in cases where there is domestic violence or domestic abuse, even if it's just, you know, mental or verbal, jealousy is a huge part of that. And not trusting your partner and having other relationships and being insecure in them, having any sort of friendship or relationship outside of you. So was that the case here? I have no way of knowing. I just know that this is a common thing that happens. Anything outside of the sphere of control. The the sphere of control. Exactly. So... Once again, like we, well, actually, okay, we'll talk about it next time, but we'll talk about it this time too. Domestic violence is real. Yep. Get some help. There's lots of resources out there. We'll drop some in this show notes too. Next week, you'll also hear about domestic violence. So I'm sorry, oh guys. This isn't we super should, happy. We should uh, do a, we should do a funky mystery for the for the what would that be the second episode of november we'll do it we'll do a we'll do, some we'll do something lighthearted. we'll do a mystery with nobody getting murdered yeah we'll nothing do, sad we'll do just some a mystery yeah we'll, do, we'll have a scooby-doo episode it'll be great 
and it'll be nice. Jinkies. <laughs>